Well, hello, friends, and welcome to His Mighty Hand, the radio ministry and podcast ministry of the Highland Terrace Baptist Church, located in Greenville, Texas. Now, in these few moments we spend together each week, you'll hear great and stirring interviews and powerful messages from the Word of God. But the reason for it all is so you can be touched by... I'd like to say hello to our soon-to-be new friends. Let me tell you, you've come across something very special today. It's called His Mighty Hand. For a few moments, your host, Pastor Chet, will lead you through a powerful interview from someone who understands what it's like to have their life touched by the mighty hand of God. And by the way, so does Pastor Chet. If you doubt that in any way, why not check out HisMightyHand.com? You'll learn some interesting things that will really help you understand what this ministry is all about. So let's get to it, shall we? Here's what His Mighty Hand is all about. Welcome to the His Mighty Hand radio broadcast of Highland Terrace Baptist Church. And I'm so happy to welcome into our studio today, Susan von Valkenberg. And uh, Susan, we're just glad to have you. Welcome. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. So glad that you've come. Susan and her husband, Ron, are both here today. And the Van Valkenbergs have been attending our church for quite some time. And I've enjoyed getting to know them very much. And one of our visits after the services was a blessing for me because Susan began to share a little bit about uh, some things that have happened in her life that have been monumental, to say the least. And we're going to talk about some of those today. But, Susan, would you just uh, help us get started today? We just want to get to know you a little bit. So tell us about where you're from and um, how you met Ron and some of those basic biographical details of your life. Well, I was born in Baltimore, Maryland. Uh Uh-huh. And my father worked as a civilian contractor at the Department of Defense. And so we moved around often from job to job with whatever contract the government wanted him to be working on. And uh, so we bounced back and forth mostly from the Los Angeles area to the D.C. area. Wow, that's a big bounce. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And uh, one of those bounces, I was in school studying nursing at Radford University in southwestern Virginia, and my parents bounced back to California, and um, I decided to stay in Virginia so I wouldn't elongate my studies. Uh And on break, I started dating a young man at our church who happened to have a best friend whose name was Ron. (laughs) Wow, so you were dating Ron's friend. Yes. Nice. Best friend. And... Uh Uh, He played basketball, the friend, and so Ron and I would sit in the stands together and watch him play, so Uh we became good friends, and when things didn't work out with that relationship, we decided we we still wanted to hang out together. Right. And long story short, over time, it evolved into a romance, and of course, I was going to school in Virginia, and he lived in the Los Angeles area, so we had a long-distance relationship. Wow. When I graduated, I moved to California, and we got married. Wow. I worked as an oncology nurse. Oh, my goodness. And uh, he went to school for a while and then fell into... uh, 
being a software engineer with various companies, and then we started a family. And when I was in the hospital giving birth to our first child, uh, we were transferred to the Dallas area. And so he had to go and pick out a house while I was recovering without me. And so when our daughter was uh, eight weeks old, we moved to the te- Texas, and and from there we we kept uh, living here. And yeah, uh, yeah. And then I'm so glad you did. Well, I found out something new about you today that I didn't know before, mm-hmm. which is that you guys used to be in a singing group called the Van Martins. Yes, uh, we traveled around. It was uh, two. Well, really, it was three to four families, depending on what year it was. Yeah. And uh, we were at four-part to five-part harmonies. We wow. had live instruments, and we traveled in a bus on the weekends, and we'd roll in sometimes Sunday night at 2 in the morning. And Man. those that had jobs outside the home had to get up at 5 and yeah. do a week of work and yeah. and all. But we, uh, we got to uh, – it was a great opportunity to minister say. to other churches like, yeah. uh, in, in – somewhat local range since we were weekend warriors we didn't go real far from home but uh i had an opportunity to share my testimony often wow with people so it was a sacrifice staying out late like that but it was probably well worth it i'm saying oh yeah we miss it but you know time moves on and the kids grow up and uh so we took on uh decided to move to the country and Uh uh found a a place with tree houses for sale, and we bought it and opened up a bed and breakfast, treehouse bed and breakfast on a lavender and herb farm. My goodness, a treehouse bed and breakfast on a lavender and herb farm. Now, tell us a little bit about how that's going, because uh, that's really how I first got to know you all was uh, in association with the B&B. So um, what's that like, living on a b and B? I'm sure it's a lot uh, of work. It is a lot busier than we were anticipating. We, yeah. we uh, When we uh, moved there and opened it, we felt that, well, mm-hmm. you know, on the weekends we might have a few guests and then we'll just figure out how to market. Well, we had a reporter stay with us and she wrote an article for the Dallas Observer and right. it uh, gained in popularity so much that we worked for seven months seven days a week without a day off that first year and then we realized that we need to pace ourselves better (laughs) (laughs) so you were really going and blowing yes and i I should mention that the it's savannah's meadow savannah's meadow bed and breakfast well wonderful i bet that's a pretty special place i haven't had the chance to visit there yet but i'm looking forward to seeing savannah's meadow Now, Susan, you were so kind and so honest to share with me uh, something that's heavy uh, on your heart, as uh, naturally it would be, that uh, I'd love for our listeners on today's broadcast to have the opportunity to hear about. So we're approaching the anniversary of one of the most horrific days in the life of our entire nation's history which was September the 11th of 2001. Can you uh, describe for us what makes that day uh, so difficult for you, Susan? Well, my my story really begins two days earlier. Okay. It was a Sunday afternoon, and I had just uh, agreed to take on the junior church department of our church. I see. And so I was having a time of preparation that Sunday afternoon, and... Mm-hmm. 
And I just had this sense come over me that I don't know what I'm doing. I don't know what God wants me to do. And so I said to him that I would do whatever he wanted of me, no matter the cost. You said that to God? I said that to God. Two days before. Two days before. Okay. And so I've had to carry that. I'll do whatever you want, no matter the cost. No matter the cost. And we often don't think about what we say. Mm -hmm. I'll never lightly say anything again. Wow. Because the cost was great. Then uh, that Tuesday morning, I homeschooled my children. We got up and we always would start the day with Bible study. And we would read the Bible chronologically or Mm -hmm. or just from start to finish. And it just so happened, just so happened Mm -hmm. that the lesson was Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Mm -hmm. And around 830, 840 our time... uh, we were, I was telling them the story how these three young Israelites who were in Babylon would bow down to the king or the image of the king and he, they were thrown in the fiery furnace. Right. And I made the statement that no matter what fiery furnace you are asked to walk through, you still have to serve God. Wow. At that very moment, Flight 77, which my father was not supposed to be on, but chose changed his plans to go to California got that plane was uh, plummeting into the Pentagon in Washington DC with my precious father on board my goodness you'd no sooner spoken the words than you heard the news well uh, we found out like most people through the TV on TV and I was packing up the the lessons to take to church because I was going to set up the junior church room for the Sunday's lesson that I had planned and have the kids work on their schoolwork while I was doing that. So I was loading up the car and the phone rang and my brother says, where's daddy? And I was confused because I hadn't had the TV on. And I'm like, why would I know where daddy is? Because they live in Northern Virginia and I'm like, I'm assuming he's at work. And my brother's like, don't you, don't you know what's going on? The end of the world has come. And he said, turn on your TV. And so we turned on the TV. Well, we, uh, my husband Ron was able to get hold of my mother through a conference call from his work in uh, his headquarters of the company that he worked for was in McLean, Virginia, which is in Northern Virginia. And uh, all the lines in D.C. and Northern Virginia were down. And so we were, it was, we were fortunate to get hold of my mother and we asked her, you know, where's daddy? Where's and, dad? And uh, she said, oh, he's fine. He took a flight to California and he's been on that plane for a while. And I started thinking when he got on that plane, size plane, I'm like, those are the planes they're taking. And so she went to get the itinerary to find out what flight he was on. And I went and watched the TV and they said on the news, it's confirmed it was flight 77 that hit the Pentagon. I walked into my husband's office and said, just as he said, so he was on flight 77 as he was talking to my mother. And that's how I found out. Oh, my goodness. So you put it together in one ear and the other you were probably the first one to actually realize and i said to my husband probably with a horribly shocked look on my face that 
it was Flight 77 that hit the Pentagon. And he just went, I'm sorry. And he had to keep talking to my mom. And I just ran out of the room and went into the kitchen and collapsed on the floor crying. And my other kids came up and they're holding me, not knowing what was going on. What was the impact of that as it began to settle in on you? I said to myself, well, it's over. And I felt like giving up that that was the end of everything. Uh You know, life was never going to be the same again. But I had an 11-month-old baby. (laughs) Wow. And if it wasn't for the 11-month-old baby, I would have crawled into bed and never gotten out of it again. Susan, did you receive word from officials soon after that? Or did it take some time for them to reach out to the families? My husband called American Airlines Mm -hmm. to confirm that he boarded. Well, all they can confirm is that he checked in. Mm-hmm. And I'm like knowing my dad, mm-hmm. if he checked in, he was yeah. on the plane. Right. So I asked my husband, what do I do? And he says, go pack. And I said, what do I put in a suitcase? Because I didn't, I just couldn't function. And so I went and I started packing and I had just bought a black dress. And I'm like, I laid it on the bed and I said, I'm not putting that in the suitcase because my dad's going to call and say, guess what happened to me on the way to the airport? Because always in our life and watching my parents in situations that were obvious danger, Mm -hmm. he had removed them from danger. So, of course, God would remove him from danger because this couldn't happen to us. Right. Well, the call never came. Mm -hmm. And then it sunk in. So we loaded everybody in the car and we drove. It took 23 hours, only stopping for gas to get all the way to my mother's house in Northern Virginia. Then within probably a couple hours, the dark cars with the black suits came. Well, I hope you enjoyed the first part of this exciting interview from someone whose life has been touched by the mighty hand of God. If you become a regular listener of His Mighty Hand, you'll hear the remainder of this interview along with many others. Or you can go to HisMightyHand.com and go into the archives and find this and many more great presentations of His Mighty Hand. But right now, here's a message from the host of His Mighty Hand, Pastor Chet Haney. What a blessing it is to know that morning comes. We may be in the darkness of night for a time, but that's not the end of the story. God has blessings in store. And I want to uh, share a message with you on that theme today, uh, fitting in perfectly with Geneva's beautiful song about how to overcome discouragement. The truth is, this is one of the dirty tricks of the devil that he uses against us to bring us to a place where we're ineffective as believers. And it's a very effective trick that he uses. And unfortunately, one of the main targets of the enemy when it comes to discouragement are people like me, pastors and church staff members who are called by God to uh, preach the gospel and to lead the church and to minister. We are sometimes uh, savagely uh, affected by the discouragement of the enemy. And I'm not saying that our 
call is more important than anyone else's because we're all somebody in the Lord's body. But I just want you to know so that you can pray for your pastor and your church staff that uh, sometimes you'll find as a minister that if you accept the call of God, you are subject to attacks of the enemy. Uh, the, uh, the famous preacher of the last generation, uh, Charles Spurgeon, who preached at the Metropolitan Tabernacle and wrote the famous book, Lectures to My Students, devoted an entire chapter, chapter 11 of his book, is on the subject of how to overcome discouragement as a pastor. And he gave a lot of testimonies of how that was a difficult, difficult thing in his own life. Martin Luther uh, became so discouraged with his own congregation <laughs> because he felt they were godless. As much as he would preach to them, he felt like they were just were not uh, listening. And so, do you know, he went on strike. Have you ever heard of a preacher going on strike? He went on strike and refused to preach to his own congregation because he was so discouraged with their godlessness. And uh, this is Luther, by the way, who wrote the words to another beautiful song. A mighty fortress is our God. And yet in the midst of that song, do you remember the line that says, Our ancient foe still doth seek to work us woe. His wrath and power are great. And armed with cruel hate, on earth is not his equal. This was Luther's reminder to us that we are subject to the wrathful, hateful, hurtful uh, schemes and what the Bible calls the wiles of the devil. It's no wonder that the Bible tells us, the Apostle Paul that we should put on the uh, the armor of God. I want to show you a picture this morning of Andrew Stockling. He's a beloved pastor in California who recently got home from a mission trip to India. And he was so stressed out, he blamed it on jet lag. But he had a uh, a wonderful church. I believe the church is called Indian Hills, his own father was the pastor, and then he became the pastor. And Andrew became so discouraged that he literally had what I tried to describe last week, a panic attack. In fact, one of the ushers in the church found him in the bathroom, laying on the floor, trembling, unable to move or to function. The pastor of the church And uh, he was in such a panic. He, like I say, he tried to blame it on jet lag, but there were other things going on too. He was uh, being stalked by someone. And this stalker just relentlessly harassed Andrew and his family, his mother. They had actually moved his mother into the home with them and the stalker showed up at their house. And so 
so frightened were they, they sold that house and moved into another house. And just with all the stress of ministry and the difficult things going on, um, you know what set him off? The most surprising thing. Uh, there was a flooring contractor that was supposed to come to the new house and put in some floor, and he didn't come at the right time, and it just sent Andrew over the edge. Um, he wound up going to the hospital in a wheelchair. He had some sunglasses on because he was afraid the whole church of Indian Hills was going to see him getting wheeled into the hospital. And I'm telling you all this to let you know, this is not a game. Uh, sadly, Andrew Stockling took his own life last week in California. Um, it's not common that you hear of a pastor taking his own life. But the, the enemy's discouragement is very, very real. It's very powerful. In the life of every believer, and especially uh, with those who are high-value targets, if you get a pastor to fall, it discourages a lot of people. Um, <clears throat> my own um, seminary guest professor, Phil Leinberger, at... Uh, Richardson Heights Baptist Church was called upon to preach a, a funeral sermon for a pastor who had taken his own life from Kerrville, Texas. And this was a delightful young man. They were good friends. And Phil, in his um, eulogy, tried to describe the torment that could cause a... Uh, Amanda, end his life, who's a called of God pastor. It's shocking to think about, really. And yet, <clears throat> uh, though Phil did a good job, I, I saw Phil's brother, Rick Leinberger, who's a classmate of mine. We spoke about it. Phil himself became... Uh, completely engulfed in a deep, dark depression. And um, it's it's amazing to think about um, how these things take place. And, and therefore, this morning, I, I don't want to um, overly alarm anyone. I don't want to um, cast this heavy um, feeling on the congregation, though I obviously already have. But I want us to think about this tool as we prepare for what we pray next Sunday is going to be a great opportunity to have renewal and revival as a church. Discouragement. It's a dirty trick of the enemy. Did you know that uh, James says Elijah was a man of like passions, just as we are. And he said that to encourage us to pray. Because Elijah was a great man of prayer. And James says, look, he's just like us. He's one of us. He's a man with the same kind of personality, the same kind of situation. 
Same kind of passions as we are. Did you know that Elijah sank into a deep depression? It is uh, described for us in our text for today. And I I just feel somehow it would be better for us uh, not to stand and read this lengthy passage this morning. Because it would take almost too much time to go through every detail. Let me just describe it for you if I may. It's in 1 Kings chapter 19. Here's what just happened. Elijah just experienced the greatest victory that a pastor uh, could hope or a prophet could hope to experience in his lifetime. And this was on Mount Carmel where we have visited a couple times on trips that I've taken to Israel. You can go there and you can see where this took place. All the 400 false prophets of Baal were there and they had uh, led the people into a terrible um, calamity of deception. And uh, as those prophets of Baal misled the people, Elijah stood bravely against all of them at the danger of his own life. Uh, They wanted to stone him. They wanted to kill him, just as they had killed many other prophets, put them to death. The true men of God were being killed by the people because they wanted to hear the false message of these prophets of the fertility cult, Baal. And so Elijah said, I'll tell you what we're going to do. We're going to build an altar and you pray to your God and I'll pray to my God and let's see what happens. So they built this big altar and they soaked it with barrels full of water and put the sticks on the altar. And the prophets of Baal began to dance and chant and shout their incantations and cut themselves And uh, everything they knew how to do to see if they could get fire to fall on that altar. Of course, nothing happened. And when it was Elijah's turn, it's striking to me that he never really mentioned fire in his prayer. He never really asked God to send fire from heaven. Here's what he prayed. He prayed, dear God, I pray that you will show these people that there is still a God in Israel who is real and true. And when he prayed that, the fire fell from heaven upon that altar. It consumed the altar. It consumed the sticks and the wood and the sacrifices. And it knocked everybody uh, to their faces. And Elijah wasn't through. Just as the prophets of God had been murdered and executed. God said, you bring, uh, through Elijah, he said, bring all those false prophets of Baal down here to the brook Kidron. And Elijah executed them with a sword. Four hundred of them. Just an unbelievable spectacle of the judgment of God poured out through this man, Elijah. 
Well, you might think that after that experience, I, uh, Elijah would have confidence and strength as he reflected on it. But do you remember Jezebel, the wife of Ahab, the king? She said, may it be done unto me also and ever so severely if I don't see to it that by this time tomorrow, you were going to wind up just as they did. And Elijah, this strong, confident, bold, conquering prophet of God, went into a panic of discouragement and depression. And he began to flee. He ran so far down, he went all the way down into the Negev region of Beersheba. When I went to Israel the first time, we stayed in Beersheba. And I can tell you, you've never seen a wilderness like this. Barren, rocky, dry. And then you go down from Beersheba on down into the Negev where Elijah went down to Mount Horeb. There's not even any, not even a stick of grass. Hot, barren. Uh, we tried to work on a archaeological dig site in that region and it got up to 123 by one o'clock every day. We'd start at four o'clock in the morning so we could try to get a full day in by one o'clock. We'd come back to Beersheba and just try to survive the heat. Thank you for listening to His Mighty Hand today. You can learn more about this ministry and about your host at hismightyhand.com. That's all lowercase with no spaces, hismightyhand.com. And thank you for sharing these moments with us. Perhaps your life too will be touched by 